0: Good morning, Abundant Life Church. It is so great to be with you. Uh, Are you aware it's cold outside? Yes. Okay, I'm from Arizona, I get it. But I'm like waking up in the morning, I'm like... Wow, this is cold, and it's windy right now, and then uh, I was out there greeting, and a lot of you are wearing very warm clothes, and it made me feel better about myself. So we'll all be in the the cold together. It's so great to be with you guys. I love this time of year. I love talking about Christmas. Uh, I just love all this, and so we're so glad that you're a part of this with us. I do want to let you know, a little bit of housekeeping first, uh, very big uh, adjustment for all of us. Uh, Coming in January, we are going to adjust all of our service times. Uh, so part of the reason why, and I know you're like, oh, what what's it going to be? Part of the reason why is we have all different times at all different campuses. And, and even here we have them spaced differently. And it's just created some complications as we're trying to streamline uh, how we're doing this weekend experience. And so what we're going to do beginning the first weekend of January are going to be these times, okay. So 8.30, 10 a.m. and 11.30. That means that every single one of us is going to be shifting. Now listen very carefully. I'm gonna make an appeal to you with every ounce of credibility you will give me, okay? Please, 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 prayerfully consider moving to the 830 service, okay? I love you so much, but here's the deal. You are at the most packed service and it's fun and exciting, but if you've ever gone, man, parking's crazy and it's hard to get my kids And guess what, 8.30 is gonna be amazing. You will have more parking space and all that. Now here's the deal, seriously, uh, we're trying to grow, we're trying to create room for more people. Um, and and uh, at these two services, the, the 10 and the 11.30, uh, those are easier times to get people to, uh, to bring a, a guest to. If you would consider it, I would love to invite you to make the 8.30 your normal service. If you're like, hey, eight o'clock was just way too early. I get you. We're going to move it back half an hour for you to make it more... more likely that you would go to this. But if you would, seriously, you'd be doing our church a gift uh, to create more room at these services. And so again, uh, if that's totally out of the question, I get it. But if you would consider it, I would plead with you uh, to do that. It would be so great uh, for us to be able to shift some seats around. Uh, we got plenty of room at that service. So my hope is that we are able to uh, to kind of move people around between these uh, three services. Uh, what you'll notice now, uh, Sandy and Vancouver are using the same service blocks. So Sandy does the, the first two 8, 30, and 10. Vancouver does the 10 o'clock. Um, and again, part of that is if you ever bounce around the campuses, it was very confusing to know uh, which time do you show up depending on which campus you were on. So now we're kind of streamlining all of that. That begins January 7th. Uh, so if you just plan on showing up your normal time, uh, you're, you're going to notice something's a little bit different, right? So January 7th, I want you to take note of that. If you would, get your Bibles out, get your programs out. Uh, we're going to dive into the scriptures today. Uh, if you've got a Bible with you, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1. And I ask you and invite you every single week, bring your Bible. Because every single week you're going to use it here. And so I encourage you to get it out. Uh, Hopefully you brought a physical Bible with you. That's great. If you did, go to Matthew 1. If you've got a Bible app on a device, on a phone, uh, go ahead and get there and scroll to Matthew 1. And we're going to read this story together today. If you've got a program with you, you'll see a, a blank page there to take notes. And again, we encourage you, just write down what God is communicating to you as we open up and dive into the scriptures together. Well, today we're gonna look at the story of Joseph. And uh, I would suggest Joseph is probably the most overlooked character in the Christmas story. Uh, he has a humongous role that he plays. And most of us don't really think about it or know about it or uh, reflect much on it. So today I hope that you see the Christmas story from a new vantage point as we look at it through Joseph's point of view. So we're gonna go to Matthew chapter 1. We'll begin reading in verse 18. So says, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Now, this is what we talked about last week. If you are with us, talked about the whole story of Mary and how this took place. I'd encourage you to go online if you missed it, watch that one. It will help all these weave together as you'll see how all these stories connect. But we spent time last week talking about that. Verse 19, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace... He had in mind to divorce her quietly. Now let me uh, just repeat something I said last week just so that you're uh, up to date on this. You might be going, okay, what, he's betrothed, but what, what does this mean? Um, so you'll, you'll notice that he's, uh, Joseph is called her husband in this. They're not married yet, but in, in their culture, betrothal was such a big deal, you would call them the male in it a husband, and you would have to get a divorce to break it. So Mary and Joseph are not married at this point in the story. This is an important detail. They are betrothed together, but the Jewish betrothal is a really significant deal. And so Joseph realizes, wow, Mary is pregnant now. I'm not the dad. This is not the story that I thought we were entering into. So he's going to divorce her quietly. What does that look like? Well, again, as you look at their culture, it's very different than ours. There actually was an Old Testament law just for a situation like this. Uh, You can go back and read this in Numbers chapter 5. I'm not going to read it. I'll summarize it for you. Numbers chapter 5 talks about what you would do whenever someone was accused or suspected of committing adultery as would Mary in this situation. She's gonna be pregnant, Joseph's not the dad, what's going on? And so there was a whole ritual that they would do. Numbers five talks about it. It's pretty weird. Let me, let me sum it up for you. You would go to the, a, a priest, and this would be a public ceremony that they would do, a ritual. They would go to the priest, the accused person would. And the priest would take a, a glass and, and fill it with water and hand it to the person. I'm not making this up, read Numbers five. Then the priest would go, grab dust off the tabernacle floor, throw it into the drink. Then the priest would take a scroll and write all the accusations against that person onto the scroll. Then they would wash the ink off of the accusations into the water. And the person would have to drink this bitter water. Okay, this is a little bit strange, but this is how they would do it. Then, depending on whether or not the person was guilty, uh, that drink would physically cause them harm. So if they were guilty, it would cause them harm. If they were innocent, it wouldn't do anything to them. This was the way that they would figure this out. And so again, you just got to transport yourself. This is a different culture. Now, again, this would be done with a priest and in front of the community. It's a very public way of dealing with sin. But Joseph doesn't want to put Mary through this. And so Joseph's figuring out, "How, how how can I move forward? How can I get a divorce without embarrassing and humiliating Mary? Now, in the Jewish tradition, there's something called the Mishnah. The Mishnah is a written account of the oral law or the oral tradition that they would have. This is not scripture. It's not the Old Testament. But it gives you a glimpse into how they lived out the Old Testament. So, again, they would have all these rabbis would give the oral tradition of here's how we follow these laws. And then eventually someone wrote that down. Now we know it as the Mishnah. I want to read to you a section of this, because this is what scholars believe Joseph had in mind. It's a little clause that gets him around what Numbers 5 would normally indicate he should do in this situation. Here's what the Mishnah says. Uh, This is in in, in a situation of adultery or accused adultery. Uh, He expresses jealousy before two witnesses. And he imposes on her the requirement of drinking the bitter water. That's Numbers 5 I just talked about. On the testimony of a single witness or even on his own evidence. Okay, what is this? This is a clause that gets away from the public uh, acknowledgement of, of dealing with adultery. And so instead of the priest and the community, uh, you bring before two witnesses. Okay, And then you can do this on the testimony of a single witness. So Joseph could have just gone to two witnesses and said, hey, I want to divorce Mary quietly. I don't want to bring the whole community into it. This is how I want to do it. Scholars believe this is probably what he had in mind. This is the way he's going to do it without bringing this whole disgrace before Mary. But let me stop here and ask an interesting question. Okay, now again, I want you to see the story from a a new vantage point. Does Joseph believe Mary? Have you ever thought about this? At this point in the story, does he believe her? Now, most of us would say, no, why? Because he's about to divorce her. Of course he doesn't. Now, I'm gonna argue something that this is my opinion, but I would suggest to you, I think Joseph does believe Mary. Now, what's going on with that? I think Joseph is looking at this story going, okay, this woman that I was pledged to be married to is now pregnant without me, and not just with any child, with God himself, Okay, she has supernaturally become conceived with God and will therefore be the mother of God. What part do I possibly play in that story? Now, as a guy, you're going, look, the part she needs me for, she doesn't need me. She already got that done. So, what am I gonna do for Mary here? She doesn't need me. God has supernaturally done this. I think Joseph, knowing his character, I think Joseph's going, look. I I thought I was gonna be in this story, but this story doesn't need me. Mary has got God. God is supernaturally doing this. I'm not gonna be a part of this. And so I think Joseph is doing the honorable thing as he sees it, trying to opt out, trying to remove himself from a story that he doesn't think he has any part to play in. And if we're honest, a lot of us approach Christmas like that. That's some story far away, has nothing to do with me today. And yet notice... What God says to Joseph, verse 20. But after he had considered this, Joseph's plan, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said to the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. God goes to Joseph directly and says, Joseph, you belong in this story. Joseph, I need you to be part of the story. Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. I imagine Joseph's going, really? Like, you've you want me to be a part of this? Like, you you want me to step into this story? I think Joseph's going, what What possibly could I do? What possible role do you need from me? Now, we'll get to that in a second. But notice how God tells Joseph. Now, again, last week we talked about uh, God tells Mary through the Archangel Gabriel, and it's this incredible conversation. That's not how God tells Joseph. He tells him, if you noticed, in a dream. Now, we, we read these stories, we kind of put them on a pedestal that we don't normally apply normal logic to. Um, use your normal senses in this story. So you have a best friend. And your best friend comes to you and says, I'm about to do something crazy that nobody c- can explain because God told me to. And you say, okay, how did God tell you? I had a dream last night. <laughs> what? Like, what did you have for dinner? Like, did, did you go to bed on time? Like, what? I mean, you would have some clarifying questions. You wouldn't go, oh, cool, clearly God must be speaking to you because you had a weird dream. Like, we would not go along with this today. If someone did the same thing to you today, you'd be like, I don't, I don't think you should do that. I, I don't think this is what God wants you to do. No, I, I dreamed about it. No, like, don't dream about that anymore. Like, that is not how God works. And yet, yeah, this is how God tells Joseph. It doesn't come to him when he's awake. He's asleep. Even more bizarre, God is going to do the same thing to Joseph two more times in the next chapter. Let me show you this. And again, this gets into a little bit of the story of Herod we're going to look at next week. But just notice how God communicates to Joseph. Matthew 2, 13. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Verse 19. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Three different times. God comes and tells Joseph what to do, but he always does it with Joseph in a dream. You ever have that moment where you're like, I just I'm I'm at my wit's end. I need to hear from God. So I'm going to go for a walk. I'm going to I'm going to pray. I'm going to read my Bible. I got to do something to hear from God. I wonder if Joseph's like, I don't know what to do. I got to hear from God. I'm going to bed. <laughs> going to sleep. I'm called early night. I need to hear from God, so I'm going to bed. Like he just knew. That's how God speaks to me. He's going to talk to me. In a dream, and, and I was thinking about this, and I just wonder why did Gabriel, the archangel, not wait until Joseph and Mary were together before revealing this great plan? Wouldn't have that been way more efficient? I mean, God, you could kill two birds with one stone here. Just have Gabriel wait a little bit longer until they're together, and, and then you know appear to them. But God doesn't do that, and I think it tells us volumes about God. You you could say that Joseph and Mary, this is their story together. And in a way, that's true. But in a way, it's not true because they each have radically different roles they're going to play. Mary has her role she's going to play. Joseph has his role. They're very different. And so God meets each of them in these roles and he invites them each into this story. And he does it unique to the person. Like Mary, maybe there's something about Mary. She needed to hear that from the Archangel Gabriel. And Mary, maybe for some reason, Joseph needed to hear from a dream and that needed to be the way it was done. I, I don't know. Have you ever looked at someone else and, and who's hearing from God and they tell you what God's teaching them and you have the thought, I wish God talked to me like that. I wish God did in my life what he does in your life. See, we see that, that's how God works. He seems to talk to different people, different ways. And so you may look at someone else and go, I just wish I had your experience with God. And yet God's gonna invite you into your own story. God's going to invite you uniquely to you. And no, I'm not going to communicate to you like that. I'm going to communicate to you like this. And so Joseph might have said, well, I wish I had Gabriel. I wish an archangel visited me. But God communicates to Joseph uniquely through dreams. That's how God does it in his life. And so Joseph figures out, all right, this is what God is inviting me to do. Notice verse 24. When Joseph woke up, because he's dreaming, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him. And he took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son. And he gave him the name Jesus. I I love this. This It's such a a beautiful response from Joseph. Now, last week I, I talked about my love of Christmas music. And I talked about uh, a song that I kept thinking about last week as I was working on the message, Mary, Did You Know? Uh, because we always ask every, this, you know, every part of this time of year. And, and I talked about Mary did know. But uh, as I was thinking about that, I started working on a new Christmas song this year, okay. Uh, this is still in the works, but I'm, I'm going to bring it to you hot off the press, still dialing it in. Here's the title I'm currently working with. Joseph, what about you did you also know? I think it's catchy, guys. I think it's real catchy. I think it might, it might go viral. We'll see. We'll see. I'm still, I'm still working on it. Uh, but you, just, you look at all these stories and you're like, well, how much did he know? You know? And, and you have the same question that you have about Mary. Here's how you know that Joseph knew what was going on. Because Joseph is the one who names Jesus. Now that might be a weird, like minor detail to you in the story. It's very significant. God tells Joseph, you are to name him Jesus. Why is that important? In this culture, when the dad would name a child, it was the dad's acknowledgement, this is my son. This is my daughter. It was the cultural way of the dad expressing ownership in a healthy way over the family going, this is, this is mine. And so Joseph gets this opportunity to say, this is my son. I mean, imagine that moment for Joseph. I didn't make him. I, I, I don't really know how to raise him, but, this is my son. This is Jesus. I, I will name him. It's Joseph's acknowledgement to play his role in the story. And he says, all right, I, I'm going to do this. And so Joseph is not Jesus' biological father. But in a very real sense, he is his dad. He's his father. He's going to raise Jesus. And you see this throughout other passages. There's a, a story where Jesus is growing up and, and his parents can't find him and he's in the temple and, and they're trying to figure out what's going on. And I want you to notice the wording that is used in Luke chapter 2, verse 48. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Now, again, just notice the language. It's not Mary and Jesus and the third wheel Joseph. It's your father and I are raising you. We have been searching for you. We are doing what parents do. See, Joseph became his dad, even though he wasn't biologically his father. Now, here's what's interesting to consider, okay? Jesus would have called Joseph father before he ever called God his father. Jesus would have looked at the person Joseph and called him dad before he ever knew That God was his dad. And you begin to realize the importance, the significance of the role that Joseph played in Jesus' life. And and Jesus is going to grow up to to follow Joseph in his line of work. Now Joseph's not a rabbi, he's a carpenter. So before Jesus begins his ministry, he's a carpenter. He's making furniture. So much so that when Jesus begins his ministry, this becomes an issue for some people. Let me show you in Mark chapter 6, verse 2. They're listening to Jesus. Here's what they say. Uh, When the Sabbath came, Jesus began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things? They asked. What's this wisdom that has been given to him? What are these, these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Joseph's son? Like what's going on? Because Jesus looked like his dad. He acted like Joseph. He was in the same line of work that Joseph was. And he began to realize the significance that Joseph had. And yet I wonder, what if Joseph would have gone through his original plan? What if Joseph would have said, you know what, I'm going to divorce Mary. This is just too risky. I, I, I don't know. It would have meant that Mary would have had to enter into this story all by herself. She would have had to enter into this incredible, hard to explain story all by herself but Joseph's the first one that stands with her. He's the first one that says, Mary, I believe you. Mary, when no one else will, I'll give you my credibility. I'll align my story with your story. And you learn something fascinating here about the role that Joseph plays. Now you, you could say that in a profound sense, this Christmas story is the undoing or the redemption of the first story in scripture. In the garden of Eden, You have sin enter into the world through Eve's decision to eat the fruit. And here you have God redeeming the world, coming first to a woman. Saying, Mary, I need you to do something for me. Mary, you have an incredible part to play. It's the opposite of what you see with Eve. In the Garden of Eden, when when Adam is brought into the situation, he doesn't stand by his wife. He says, this woman you put with me, she's the one. He blames her. Joseph says, I'll stand with Mary, I'll support her, I'll be with her. It's a complete reversal of the beginning pages of scripture where God is undoing all that sin had done and he's doing it through Mary and Joseph, this incredible couple. Now Joseph is going to have an unbelievable legacy in ways that many of us don't ever stop to think about. I want to show you another passage, this is not a passage we think of with Christmas... But it's one of my favorite passages and it's near and dear to my heart uh, for, for different reasons. But, but I wanna show you this passage. This comes from the book of James, chapter one. James writes this, this in, in the New Testament. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Okay, so James takes all of, what is religion? Oh, we have all these, no, he boils it all down. He says, this is what religion is, is to look after orphans and widows in their distress. And many of you, you have adopted in orphans in your house. You have adopted in kids who were not biologically yours. And you have seen the transformational story this is. But I want you to stare at this and go, how did James have this great insight? Why why was James the one that, that explained what religion, real religion actually looks like? Well, it's fascinating if you consider who James is that is writing this. James is the half brother of Jesus. That means that James's parents were Mary and Joseph. How did James know about God's heart for orphans and widows? How was he so dialed into that? I suspect because he had watched his father love his mother. He had watched as his father stood when no one else would believe his mom, and he had seen that kind of love. He had seen his dad sacrifice his own reputation, his own story to be a part of Mary's story. And years later, James writes about, he goes, You know what real religion looks like? So when you stand up for the vulnerable, you stand up for the orphans and the widows in their distress. And I think he learned this first from his dad, from Joseph. See, Joseph doesn't just raise Jesus, he, he raises a whole family. Now, one of the misconceptions we have when it comes to the theology of Christmas, some people think that, that, you know, Mary was always a virgin. She's a perpetual virgin. Um, That's actually not the way the text uh, explains it. And I think of uh, something that Greg Boyd once said. He said, if it's true that Mary was always a virgin, then I always thought Joseph was the one we should make into a saint. (laughs) The reality is, Mary was not always a virgin. And Joseph's not a saint, but Joseph and Mary are literally going to raise a family that will change the world. They are going to raise up kids who will forever alter the course of history. And this is the role that Joseph plays. This is what he steps into by his willingness to be a part of this story. And so here's how I would say it. As as we learn about Christmas through the lens of Joseph, here's how I would summarize it. The Christmas story is about God being with the vulnerable. What's the real meaning of Christmas? The Christmas story is about God being with the vulnerable. Now, let me ask you this question as you stare at this. How do you celebrate a story like that? I, I wanna suggest to you, if you'll allow me, that the way you celebrate this is not to mandate that everyone has to say Merry Christmas instead of Happy Holidays. It is not to boycott the cups that Starbucks has. The way you celebrate a story like this is by joining God in being with the vulnerable. God, you're you're gonna be with the vulnerable. I choose a story like that. I will be with the vulnerable as I join you. It's not about we got to, you know, reclaim this or defend this. It completely misses the point of what Christmas is. It's us extending ourselves for others. And we see it modeled in the story of Joseph. Whether that is orphans or widows or immigrants or those who are homeless or those who are hurting or any vulnerable person around us. God, I want to celebrate the Christmas story. I choose to join you as you join them. As you stand With them, Joseph is the first one we see do this in the Christmas story. And yet Jesus will ultimately do this perfectly. He'll perfectly model how to be with the vulnerable. And he learned it first from his dad. He learned it first from Joseph on how to stand with people like that. And so my prayer as a church is that we would be known for understanding this real meaning of Christmas. We would be known as a church of standing with the vulnerable, of being a community that looks different than most communities look, that that we, we behave in such a way that the rest of the world looks at us and goes, what is up with you guys? Why do you treat people like that? We've never seen that. It doesn't look normal. That we would say, you know what? This is who God has called us to be and we are not going to adhere to the social norms of our day. And so church, I wanna challenge you really specifically. How do we begin to live a community like this? How do we begin to get outside of our comfort zones? How do we begin to see the world through other people's lenses? Here's a challenge I'm gonna gonna challenge you with today. I encourage you to build a friendship with someone who's different than you. Simple challenge. Build a friendship with someone who's different than you. Now, I I don't mean pop in one time and go, you know, write a nice card and then say, hey, I'm done. No, no, build an ongoing friendship where you invite that person to do life with you. Where you invite that person to speak into your life. Where you enter into the relationship where you teach them and they teach you and it's back and forth. But don't just do it the way the world does it. Do it in such a way that the world looks at you and goes, why are you doing that? It's so unique, it's so different. What if as an entire community, between all of our campuses, what if we modeled something different that the world has not seen, that the world cannot explain? So I'm going to give you four practical ways of of, of thinking about this, okay? And there could be a, a ton of them. First one would be racially. Build a friendship with someone who is different than you racially. You have a different story than mine. You have a different perspective than mine. You look different than me, and there is something you could teach me. You know, as I have expressed my heart for this, um, I've had a number of people say to me, oh, Jeremy, you want a diverse church? Well, you shouldn't have moved to Portland. <laughs> that's not how Portland is. Now, I, I, look, at, here's the deal. I, I don't say this, this next point, to disparage anyone. And, and if that's the mentality, I, I say this because I think we need to teach through this. If we have this idea of, oh, we live in Portland, therefore we we should just be all white and we should not even have this conversation. We are missing something significant. If you read the book of Revelation, what does the church look like when, when Jesus gathers all of us together? It is a gathering of every tribe and nation. It's not a bunch of people that just look like us. And so, how about we start modeling that now? How about we start learning that beauty of that now? And we can experience that long before we have to wait for Jesus to come back. And let me give you a real practical example. I I live 10 minutes away from the Happy Valley campus. My three direct neighbors across the street is a black family. Next to me on one side, a Hispanic family. Next to me on the other side is an Asian family. I'm going, oh, really? We live in an all-white community? Because I I think you should tell my neighbors that. (laughs) Guys, if we believe this lie and go, hey, we're just going to be a white church, I don't want to have anything to do with that. What if we decide, you know what, God, we're gonna take this seriously and we're gonna invite and do relationships and do life with people who look different than us. What if we modeled that? If we pursued that as a like, God, there's something we can learn from people who do not look like us. Church, this is what God has called us to do. You wanna know how to see the world from a different vantage point? Learn to be friends with someone who's not like you. Another area you do it is politically. As I look at the last election, I go, what, what, what went wrong? I mean, it, it went bad quickly. What happened? It's not just the outcome. You go, well, that, that's the wrong part. You know what? The, the worst thing that happened, we lost the ability to disagree with one another in love. We forgot how to do it. And so it became about party lines. I'm on this side, you're on this side, you're them, we're us. And it was this conversation where no longer could we just lovingly work through ideas. No longer could we challenge one another. No longer could we have deep discussion. It became us versus them. We cannot be a church defined by uh, by political lines, by party lines. Well, this is who we are. We have to learn how to have conversations with people that we disagree with and we still love because we follow Jesus together. What if we were a church that modeled that? So you know what, I'm gonna be friends with someone that I can't even handle their views politically, but I'm gonna learn from them. And I'm gonna talk to them. We're gonna enter in to a friendship about it. It would change the way you view people. Third area, economically. A lot of us normally hang out with people who make similar amounts that we do. Now, sometimes depending on how you wired, you might like to hang out with people who make less than you, because maybe it makes you feel more significant. Makes you feel like I've got something to offer. Look at what I have, or I can I can bless them and I like being in that position. Or maybe you like hanging out with people who have more than you. Because they always pick up the tab at dinner. And you like that. This is great. You know, they invite me to their house and it's good. Here's the deal. You need to learn how to be friends with all the spectrum. People who make more than you, people who make less than you. Because you will learn something different from both parties. And yet how easy it is to just go, oh, let's just. Let's just huddle up by those of us who we all make about the same. Let's just be around that. No, learn to be friends with someone that makes something way different than you, either way more or way less, and be amazed at what you will learn from them. fourth area is generationally. We learn to see the church as a multi-generational being. It is not just, hey, let's get a bunch of people who are all the same age as us and let's just do all all the things that our age group likes. No, the church is about bringing in generations together into a community that learns and grows from one another. So here's my challenge to you. If you're young, I challenge you to find someone older than you and ask them to mentor you. Just say, hey, I, 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 you know, there's something in your life that I really respect or admire. I'm wondering if you would just speak truth into my life. You know what it might mean? You're probably going to have to wake up earlier than normal to go have coffee with them. <laughs> so do it. Set your alarm. Get up. It will be worth it invite someone to speak into your life, you know what, you do this really well, I'd just love to hear from you. When you have ideas about what you, what you want to do, run it by them and see what their perspective is based on what they've seen. You have so much to learn from those who have gone before us. And if you're in the older group, I want to encourage you, find someone who is younger and invest in them. Not only can you learn from them, but you have so much to offer them. Find them and say, you know what, I would love to support you. I'd love to encourage you. I'd love to give all my experience, all my resources, and, and make you better as a result. And if you do that, it might mean you have to stay up later than 730 at night <laughs> and go hang out with them. And you should do it. You go, you know what, I, I just want to invest in you. I want to make you better. What if we were a church that modeled that and people went... This is weird. I don't normally see generations hanging out like that. See, in so many ways, we could model what it looks like to be a different kind of community. And God will begin to show us people in ways we normally don't see them. The problem is when you only hang out with people who are like you, you'll have such a hard time seeing the Christmas story or any story the way God sees it. Because you just have your perspective. You begin to learn other people's hurts and needs and desires and wants, and you know their story, just like you know your story, all of a sudden your heart can be more aligned to the heart of God. And you go, God, I wanna love the world the way you love the world. Every one of us has something to give others. And every one of us has something to learn from others. Seek out people who you can serve and who will benefit you as well and will teach you things that you would never get otherwise. I wanna be a part of a church like that. I wanna close by reading... Uh, something that I, I read online. And it's a it's a tweak on the Apostles' Creed. Uh, it's called the Immigrant Apostles' Creed. It's written by a guy named uh, the Reverend Jose Luis Casal. And he reframes what many of us have, have known as these are the things that we believe and this is why. But he reframes it from the point of vulnerability. And, and what I love about this is that it shows you how vulnerable this story is that we say we believe. And, and it's not just vulnerable at Christmas time, although it's certainly a vulnerable story. But the entire message of Jesus Christ is a story around vulnerability. And yet, when we just keep to ourselves, we often don't see it this way. So I want to close by reading the Immigrant Apostles Creed and invite you to consider what would happen if you saw the world like this. And we decided to be a church that, that you know, would rise up to meet people and love people this way. It says this. I believe in Almighty God, who guided the people in exile and in exodus the God of Joseph in Egypt and Daniel in Babylon, the God of foreigners and immigrants. I believe in Jesus Christ, a displaced Galilean, who was born away from his people and his home, who fled his country with his parents when his life was in danger. When he returned to his own country, he suffered under the oppression of Pontius Pilate, the servant of a foreign power. Jesus was persecuted, beaten, tortured, and unjustly condemned to death. But on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead, not as a scorned foreigner, but to offer us citizenship in God's kingdom. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the eternal immigrant from God's kingdom among us, who speaks all languages, lives in all countries and reunites all races. I believe that the church is a secure home for foreigners and for all believers. I believe that the communion of saints begins when we embrace all God's people in all the diversity, I believe in forgiveness, which makes us all equal before God, and in reconciliation, which heals our brokenness. I believe that in the resurrection, God will unite us as one, in which all are distinct and all are alike at the same time. I believe in life eternal, in which no one will be foreigner, but all will be citizens of the kingdom, where God reigns forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Jesus, make us a church that believes that. Show us how to have a heart not just for people like us but for the incredible world that you created. Father, may we see the Christmas story not as something we have to defend but as an invitation to extend ourselves for others. May we see the profound decision that Joseph made to step into the story with Mary, to choose to play a role that was very different than what he had envisioned his whole life. And yet what an incredible part he played in being the earthly father to Jesus. God, you invite each of us into this story, each of us to extend ourselves for the benefit of the vulnerable around us. May we learn to see people around us, to hear them, to value their stories and their perspectives. And may you transform us into a community that looks very different from the rest of this world. May we love others as you have loved us. We pray in Jesus' name.